0: He travels the world and scans the web to keep you up to date on the latest threats to the internet and to your cybersecurity. He brings you the latest on the fight against cyberterrorism, keeping you safe with the best cybersecurity information on the radio. It's Cybersecurity Today with John Bambinick
1: Good morning. You've tuned in to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Uh, our website is cybersecuritytodayradio.com. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Cybersec Radio, my personal Twitter account at Bambenek, B A M B E N E K or via email John at gmail.com J O H N B A M B E N E K radio at gmail.com we do take your questions for our social media segment where we talk about what you would like to know about cybersecurity how to protect yourself and your family and of course to get a podcast version of the show you can point your software to cybersecurity today radio and we should come right up for you and of course a special thank you to our radio affiliates am820 news covering tampa bay and the west coast as well as am1060 news covering the space coast and orlando Uh, Got a great show lined up for you. Wanted to talk about one story. We're going to come back again to election cybersecurity in the next segment with CyberScoop. But an interesting article came up a couple days ago out of Russia, uh, a news article or a news outlet that tended to be uh, a little bit more uh, antagonistic to the current Russian president. So it's not uh, it's not RT. It's something it's something different uh, in English known as the bell about a Russian hacker who had confessed in court to being pressured by the Russian government to hack the DNC in 2016. So a courtroom admission, uh, albeit in Russia under uh, under the circumstances of which people find themselves in court, uh, of somebody saying that he was pressured by the government to be part of hacking the DNC. So he was arrested earlier. Uh, the, the person involved uh, was arrested earlier this year. Uh, his name is Konstantin Kozlovsky. It was part of a group uh, known as uh, the lurk group that was tied to banking uh, banking thefts really and uh, one of the accusations they're uh, accused of is stealing 50 million dollars or roughly 50 million US dollars the equivalent th- uh, from Russian bank accounts which is why they got arrested or at least uh, why their indictment was happened in Russia so he pled guilty and uh, he reported uh that uh, Major General in the FSB, one of the other uh, individuals who is in charge for treason, uh, there were, some of you may remember, we talked about this a little bit, that there were two FSB officials who were charged with treason. One of those was specifically named, saying uh, that he had instructed him, Kozlovsky to attack the DNC purposes for the purpose of manipulating uh, the U.S. Uh, elections process. So, It can be, it's certainly a very interesting story. It came out of Russia. But what it means for the investigation and the ongoing uh, conversations about Russian hacking is the first time that something was said in open court uh, to indicate the specific people are involved that supported the storyline that we have been saying. Uh, as part of the private sector and the intelligence community that Russian was involved in trying to manipulate our elections by hacking the DNC, some other things, releasing emails and some of the propaganda uh, that we saw there with, with leaked emails and WikiLeaks and Guccifer and so on and so forth. So certainly... Uh, you know, it's 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 a big development. I'm sure there'll be more talking about it here uh in the coming uh weeks and months, but kind of an off the beaten path uh article, like I said, came out of Russia, but uh, reported at Fortune uh Fortune magazine, which you can take a look at that online. So uh certainly a big development in the uh ongoing uh controversy about the twenty sixteen elections. So uh stay tuned for more on that story uh as we get it. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host John Bambenac. The other story that I wanted to uh, bring up uh, before we start getting into our interviews uh, is that uh, there was another group that was stealing millions from U.S., U.K., Russian banks, uh, and uh, researchers have, uh, you know, uncovered some of this uh, of a specific new hacking group that's stolen a lot of money. Uh, we call the group Money Taker. Uh, it's hit 20 financial institutions, banks, software companies, law firms, all sorts of other things that are going on, uh, people that have lots of money, uh, and this report from a Russian security group, group IB, uh, they're targeting, uh, card processing systems, uh, like the Russian version of it and Swift. So there's uh, a lot of, uh, victims out there, 16 in the U.S., uh one in the UK and Russia and they're going after uh big money targets so this isn't the kind of stuff you'd see in your email uh necessarily but might see in uh the CFO's email of your company uh or larger institutions so uh there's lots of uh groups out there going for uh big dollar uh big dollar thefts uh out there uh, of groups out there so uh some great research uh from Group IB uh which you can read about that in ZDnet uh, you know, they've been operating for about two years, maybe a little bit less. Uh, but heavily sophisticated software, you know, is modular. They've got plugins. They can put in key loggers or whatever they need uh, to do that. Put in overlays uh, on web pages so that uh, things appear to be unmodified when they in fact are. Uh, so it's a key point, right? Cybercrime is big business. Uh, it's like any software development. You've got software uh, writers uh and developers people who are doing research and development engineering to make their products better uh to steal your money more effectively uh and uh, it's not just businesses that do have to be uh concerned about that it's also individuals uh, you know i'm less concerned about having my credit card taken i can call uh whatever credit card company i have and say hey that charge wasn't me and uh i get my money back so those impacts aren't great, but I know about a month ago we talked about a story out of Chicago of title companies uh, and law firms and people engaged in real estate transactions, getting fake documents to send money places, uh, and uh, there's a lot of other uh, stories I'm going to be working on the next week of uh, working with some victims where uh, again similar things uh, attackers uh, got involved with title companies law firms people buying and selling homes uh, to try to redirect money and if you think about it you know think of about the biggest dollar transactions that you engage in the course of your life it's not going to the grocery store or whatever it's 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 buying a car certainly uh, but buying a house where or selling a house where it It's not outside the realm of plausibility where people are doing bank transfers for hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? Think of how much your house is and, uh, you know, take out whatever you owe for your mortgage, right? The equity in there and uh, it could be a potentially very, very large number. And as an industry or society, we're not really effectively protecting that information, right? Relying on email, relying on things that can be easily snooped or compromised, uh, you know, websites that have uh, the same kind of problems with password reuse that I've talked about before, where your password for your Gmail account is the same as the password for uh, whatever you get for recipes for Christmas is the same for uh, the secure site at the bank to do wire transfers. Um, you know, so I don't have to compromise the bank. I just have to compromise the website where you download your Christmas recipes, which is probably not high security. So a lot of uh, areas uh, that we still need to work on. So uh, I'd encourage you right if you're concerned about money taker concerned about uh, people doing uh, title fraud enable two factor authentication uh you know if it's a big dollar transaction something you can't afford to lose uh, don't be afraid to make people pick up the phone to verify information to say hey did you really intend for this transfer Pay attention to the details. If somebody's asking you to wire money to, uh, you know, a bank that doesn't make a lot of sense, then uh, certainly, you know, take the extra scrutiny, pick up the phone, try to verify information. Uh, Because often when this money goes out the door and and wire transfers, I mean, that's real money that moves uh, and you've got maybe 24 hours to get it back. You know, and I've had a lot of cases over the years where people come to me, "Hey, this happened to be two weeks ago. Can you get the money back?" And you know, I hate being the guy who says no, but the answer is pretty much no. I, I can't do things uh, that far, uh, that far in the past because. They have these things called money mules where people open up bank accounts just for the purposes of receiving these large amounts of money they withdraw the money uh and then you or afford the money to other accounts or withdraw it and ship it overseas or any number of things so the money is 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 gone quickly uh and these criminals have just a huge ecosystem behind them to make this work so uh takeaways enable two-factor authentication and always be willing to pick up the phone and ask somebody if something doesn't make sense if you want additional verification Right, you're only going to buy a house once. You know, if you get wire information, you know, pick up the phone and try to verify that, and uh, you know, it can make all the difference between you uh, being in your new house without incident or or being out your life savings. So, uh, only you can protect yourself. So, we're going to take a short break here. Bring on our digital partner, CyberScoop Online. So, stay tuned for that. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host John Bambanek.
0: This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. You are listening to Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. And welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity
1: Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Joining me now is Zaid Shobarji from uh, CyberScoop.com, our digital partner. Uh, they got a lot of great news stories out there covering cybersecurity, so check that out at CyberScoop.com. Thanks for joining us today, Zaid.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: All right. So the first article I wanted to talk to is, is a topic we've uh, talked about on the show a lot about election cybersecurity uh, and the fallout from a lot of the stuff we saw in the 2016 election. Uh, and this last week, Senator Wyden has chimed in uh, criticizing the White House, wanting to do something uh, more about cybersecurity, uh, at least when it comes to our elections. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. What are you hearing?
2: Sure. Um, Yeah. So Ron Wyden is one of the most outspoken, probably one of the most outspoken members of Congress when it comes to election cybersecurity and I mean cybersecurity and privacy in general. Um, And this was a public letter that he sent to H.R. McMaster, the uh, White House National Security Advisor. And he's basically asking the White House to put more of an effort into securing the election process, which is a process that's run by the states. Um, and he he uses very strong terms in this letter. He says it's basically an abdica- abdication of responsibility um, for the federal government not to get more involved in this. And um, I mean, these sorts of public statements uh, from lawmakers happen all, ta- all the time about so, all sorts of issues. So it's not clear if anything will come out directly because of this letter, but it shows that Wyden... Uh, wants to make noise about this wants it to be in the public agenda and wants an answer from the white house
1: yeah no and, I, and, and you make a great point and, and some of the conflict they're in right as, as somebody last year who was having conversation with the federal government right you know is that there was interest but it's really a look it's it's arguably not even a state function it's a local function that uh, elections are run by the various local election authorities which are thousands who have their own authority to, for what voting machines to pick and where to put polling places and who to hire and who not. Uh, And uh, I know there's been already some very public uh, uh, pushback uh, and blow-ups when uh, the federal government tried to provide assistance. I I, I know famously, or infamously, I suppose, depending on your perspective, the state of Georgia pushed back really hard. So uh, it's certainly touching on, on something, but... You know, it, did Senator Wyden have any specifics that he really thought the federal government could do absent kind of a direct responsibility as defined under federal law?
2: Yes. Um, so, yeah, he, he does outline some specific actions that he wants the Trump Trump administration to take. Um, he outlines four actions, um, and the the, four, the first one would be that he wants the White House to assign a Uh, A senior official to be basically the point person in the White House for the federal government's approach to election cybersecurity. Um, And it's not clear what that, like, if that person would be somebody who's already in the White House or somebody who would be hired for this position. So it would be interesting to see um, where that goes. Mm -hmm. Another one is he he wants the Secret Service to include cybersecurity in the things. Uh, that it oversees when it comes to protecting a presidential candidate. Um, you know, We know that presidential candidates get a certain level of physical security and he's asking that that be extended to uh, private, uh, sorry, uh, cybersecurity. Um, and uh, another one is that um, he wants the Department of Homeland Security to declare political campaigns as critical mm-hmm. infrastructure. Um, The DHS earlier this year designated elections in general as critical infrastructure. And that was actually pretty controversial among uh, certain states, uh, state election officials, because they were like, what does this actually mean in the context of, um, of elections and critical infrastructure and all that. Um, But Wyden is asking that that be extended to political campaigns. And and that's presumably because of um, some of the things that happened in the election last year, like how, John Podesta, the, who was running the Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton campaign, had his email hacked through a phishing scam. Um, so, I mean, it's it's probably uh, uh, an effort to get some of the people uh, to, to to provide more cybersecurity assistance to the people involved in these campaigns. Right. And the last thing that uh, that he's asking for is that NIST, the National Institutes for Technology Standards of Technology. And DHS, he wants them to develop a standard to uh, score and grade individual states on how they're approaching cybersecurity when it comes to elections and tell them where they need to improve.
1: Yeah. Well, like I said in and that, and that last one or the third one, right, you mentioned uh, making political campaigns part of critical infrastructure, right? Yeah. And that, that one's probably more controversial than it sounds. Uh, but also uh, kind of fairly important. Uh, I know I've told other people is that, you know, we focus on on, on the breach of DNC and others uh, as as a big thing. But the reality is, is that political parties, prominent ones, are generally considered valid intelligence targets. Uh, their information usually isn't used in a propaganda operation. But intelligence agencies will, and I'm sure ours do too, get information out of campaigns because that's where the first draft of government policies are written, uh, at least, at least for the winning party, anyway. So there's a lot of great intelligence value that is uh, relevant to uh, other countries uh, that's being stored by these networks uh, and has government impact, but is not really protected with government resources or getting the same scrutiny. You know, the flip side of that argument is, do we really want to use taxpayer money to support political parties to protect themselves? Shouldn't they be protecting their own networks?
2: Yeah, I guess the argument from White is that even though they're not technically a part of the government, they're a huge, huge act like part of the process um, when it comes to elections and governance in general. So it uh, they, they need to have some assistance when it comes to cybersecurity.
1: Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see, you know, what if anything develops uh, out of there. I, I think certainly having NIST, the National Information or National Institute of Standards and Technology, creating, uh, you know, these frameworks and scoring systems—that's what NIST does every day. Uh, and certainly, I know a lot of election authorities are uh, are tightening things up because they don't want to have a lot of doubt uh, exist. Uh, once elections are done. So certainly, uh, you know, there's work that can be done. There is there is some things that the federal government could be doing. Um, you know, I still think there's a lot of uncertainty about, you know, what exactly we should be doing in a concrete step. Right. In terms of, oh, OK, we'll secure this or put in this firewall or, or, or whatever. Right. But but certainly. Uh, it's a first step. And, and, you know, I think there's just one item in the back of this, right, that I wanted to mention, uh, is that you did say several times, or at least at the start of this, Senator Wyden has been very vocal on cybersecurity matters. Uh, probably the, I think he's the only senator who really is. Uh, and part of that is because he has a fellowship program. He had a, a cybersecurity professional actually working for his office. Uh, and then picking apart all the low hanging fruit that he saw just in his days of walking in and out of the Senate of how they're not smart cards uh, were working or uh, various things that we take for granted in the private sector. But, you know, he was embedded in that uh, senator's office for a good long time. Uh, and uh, it shows in some of the ways that Senator Whiten is uh, talking about those issues. Uh, you know, is that is that your impression as well?
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm Senator Wyden. Is it, Senator Wyden isn't. Um, I mean, I, I'm not. Uh, I don't. I, I'm, he's not particularly on my like beat. I don't. I don't cover him very thoroughly. But it, that, that's what. That's how it seems to me. And um, I can tell by this letter that he wants this issue to be discussed in the public sphere. Um, and I mean, obviously, it's just a public letter, so it doesn't have the force of law. But it, it, it means that he's asking the White House, and he's asking for H.R. McMaster by name to respond to this, so it'll be interesting to see if uh, what, what the White House does say.
1: And that's Zaid Shurbaji from uh, Cyberscoop.com, our digital partner. Thank you again, Zaid. Thank you. You're listening
0: to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambenek. John Bambenek, on the radio and on the lookout for the latest cyber threats. back with Bambanek on cybersecurity.
1: And welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host John Bambanek. A lot of great information from Zaid from cyberscoop.com, our digital partner, talking a little bit more about some federal news uh, coming out of Washington about cybersecurity because it does touch upon several other topics we've we've already talked about. President Trump signed a 700 billion dollar agreement uh, the National Defense Authorization Act this past week that sets bu- uh, policy and budget guidelines for the Department of Defense. Uh, and there's a lot of cybersecurity stuff in there. The The big news uh, is that the ban on Kaspersky, Kaspersky Lab software throughout the federal government uh, is now codified as a measure of law uh, coming uh, around the same time that Kaspersky is also closing its D.C. office. So uh, they're making it official, in some ways escalating uh, the fight with Kaspersky labs uh, in the United States. So uh, they're certainly keeping that pressure on and not really flexing their muscle uh, or or, uh, or shying away uh, from a very public confrontation with uh, with Kaspersky. Some other measures in there. Uh, is that the president will define what cyber war is. You hear a lot about this term uh, cyber war, but nobody really knows what it means. Now the president will be required to come up with a definition. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of other uh, people who need to do reporting and studying about cybersecurity. Uh, you know, the House of Representatives, right, of the Speaker and the Minority Leader, you know, have powers to come up with their plans in the event of a breach. But going back to the topic uh, of elections, uh, specifically, is that the Department of Defense was also tasked with coming up with a plan to counter specifically uh, Russian information operations, right, which is the formal name uh, of Russia using propaganda to manipulate the American public, particularly uh, in the form of electioneering. So uh, the defense secretary is, is is on point for figuring out how uh, to deal with Russia using Facebook and Twitter and various other outlets to try to manipulate the, the American public, you know, and they have uh, roughly uh, six months to come up with a plan. So Uh, It'll be interesting to see what they come uh, what comes out of that uh, What the Defense Department thinks that they can do about countering uh, online propaganda, so? uh, Certainly uh, this issue is still relevant people are concerned about it uh, and Congress continues uh, To push the issue and demand answers, so uh, you know, I will uh, Certainly be interested to see uh, what the Defense Department thinks uh, that they can do Uh, one other item. I wanted to point in there. Uh, is that there's also a lot of uh, cybersecurity scholarship program money being put aside with the National Science Foundation, uh, Office of Personnel Management, uh, and a couple of others. Uh, again, we're, uh, trying to deal with the, the skills gap both in the government and, uh, in industry, right? We have more, uh, cybersecurity needs than we have people able to do it. Uh, trying to find ways to get people into the industry. It is, Uh, I mean, tuition and college is expensive, and certainly the professional certifications and training on top of it, uh, there's a big cost uh, involved. Uh, So certainly there's money being set aside. uh, I know uh, one of the things that I do teaching at the University of Illinois, I'm affiliated with a a scholarships for service uh, program. Where undergrads or graduate students basically get uh, their tuition paid for and a stipend on top of it, depending on whether they're undergrad or grad, uh, you know, and focusing strictly on uh, cybersecurity for their studies for each year in the program. They have to spend a year in government service. So there's a lot of programs like that out and about. Uh To help people uh, pay for some of these programs and get into these careers uh they're certainly high paying they're very excited it's never uh very exciting uh, and it's certainly never a dull moment uh you know all the time i'm I'm working on new and interesting problems, but uh, a lot of people talk about hey, how can I get into this industry? how can I get myself started uh, and certainly right talking to high school people and, and younger uh, you know how to get to point a and point b uh certainly Congress is seeing that they're putting more scholarship money aside uh to really help, uh, people get, to get there from point A to point B. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambinek. Uh, so, uh, switching gears again, it is still a government story, but this one is a criminal prosecution. Uh, and in fact, some of my colleagues were involved with this. So, uh, the Mirai botnet, maybe you've heard of it or not, uh, but I'm sure around this time last year, you probably heard that Twitter was knocked offline by a cyber attack. Uh, and that was due to the Mirai botnet. In essence, uh, it was a collection of Internet of Things devices, DVRs and the like, that had vulnerable software, uh, which allowed attackers to take over those devices. They still worked. If you had this DVR in your home, you would still be able to watch TV and do whatever you do with a DVR. Uh, but it would also be able to be tasked by criminals to do things. And one of the things they did do uh, was knock Twitter offline. So it was a big investigation. Many of my friends were, were involved in it, uh, and, and uh, there's a couple of things. I, I contributed uh, to the cause along the way, uh, but finally, uh, charges uh, and a plea agreement, I should say, for three of the defendants, uh, Paras Jha, Josiah White, and Dalton Norman, uh, were all involved creating a scanning tool to find these devices that would infect them with malware, and then, uh, and then put them into a botnet that were able to, uh, perform attacks on various websites. So, uh, in a little, uh, about a year, I guess, uh, from the time of attack to the time, uh, they copped their plea, it's been about one year. So very, uh, very quick turnaround, uh, run in part out of the, uh, FBI field office in Alaska, but, uh, you know, some of my fellow professionals being involved. One year is incredibly quick to, uh, turn a case like this around. Uh, and it's certainly good to see that, uh, that's happening quicker and quicker that we're able to, uh, get our hands on these people and put them in our justice system. Uh, so hopefully as a sign that, uh, that we could start doing this quicker and quicker. So there's a real deterrent effect. So some good news there, you know, a year after the fact, we finally get a plea agreement from the three people, uh, behind this, uh, they're going to be spending some time as guests of the United States Bureau of Prisons. So certainly uh, some good, uh, uh, a happy ending to that story. And one other story uh, that I wanted to cover, uh, late breaking uh, here at the end of the week, uh, that you may have seen Thursday, the federal communications as repealed. Uh, The so-called net neutrality uh, regulations or the open internet order. Uh, So you've probably seen a lot on the internet about that and what it means. Uh, There's been a lot of sensationalism and things out there of that sort. But, uh, you know, what you need to know is that these rules came into effect 2015, basically just undoes those rules. Uh, a lot of controversy about this. Uh, one aspect of it of a cybersecurity nature is that it appears that there were automated tools out there submitting comments uh, because for every regulatory change is a period of public comment. So millions of comments were submitted uh, in the names of real Americans, some of whom were deceased. Uh, In attempt to try to influence the FCC, Uh, and there's a lot of back and forth about uh, whether that should be investigated. Is the FCC cooperating uh, and what it means? Uh, And certainly, right, it was a very interesting tactic as, as somebody who's been uh, has a couple of government appointments on boards and uh, been in, in uh, you know elected office. There is obviously you know, plenty of opportunity for public comment. A lot of systems out there. Very few of them have any real authentication. Right? I could start submitting comments as uh, U.S. senator if I wanted. There's no technical thing to stop me so uh, it goes back to uh really needing authentication uh needing to prove people are who they say they are uh, i'm not really sure how much the fcc really pays attention to comment counts uh i i you know the president campaigned on repealing uh network neutrality so i'm not really surprised that it's happening now that was decided in january they're just going through the motions uh but you know it was big news uh that happened here uh, Thursday, uh, culminating in, in a bomb threat that uh, related into uh, some uh, security situation at the FCC that was resolved pretty quickly. So a lot of uh, uh, a lot of news out there, but uh, in essence, it returns us to pre-2015. Uh, and time will tell what that means for the actual consumer internet and and our relationship with internet service providers. So we're going to take a short break here. We're going to bring on Christine Schulhorn. Uh She's a project manager with Security Planner, SecurityPlanner.com. Uh, it's a tool where you can customize based on the kind of devices you use and technologies you use and the concerns you have uh, to give you the most relevant security advice to you. So I want to bring her on talk about the tool because I think it's a really uh, great thing that everybody should take a look at uh, at uh, securityplanner.com. So we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back after these short messages. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambenek.
0: Scan your computer, but don't scan the dial. Stay right here. John Bambenek will be right back. This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek.
1: And welcome back. You've tuned into Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Uh, over this past week, I saw uh, a news release of something that I found uh, very interesting called Security Planner. I know a lot of people talk to me about how they can protect themselves and what do they need to be doing to protect their cybersecurity. Uh, and, and the answer is really customizable because people have different kind of phones, they have different kind of laptops, they have different needs. Uh, so this tool is something that caught my uh, attention because, you know, it starts with a survey and, and allows people to customize what they do, uh, or what they should be doing from a cybersecurity perspective. So I wanted to bring on somebody to talk about that. Joining us now is Christine Schulhorn. She is a project manager with Citizen Lab and specifically working on Security Planner. So thank you for joining us, Christine.
3: Thanks, John. Great to be here.
1: All right. Uh, let's kind of dump dive right into it. So tell us a little bit, you know, why did you guys decide to do Security Planner and, and tell us a little bit about the platform?
3: Sure. Yeah. So, you know, the the genesis of Security Planner, really, it, it started a couple of years ago when um, Citizen Lab and Jigsaw got together and, and they wanted to answer sort of one fundamental question that um, folks at the lab were continually getting. So Ron Debert, who's the director of Citizen Labs, was, was getting this question all the time. What can I do to be more secure online? Um, and it's one of those questions that it's a little bit hard to answer because it really mm-hmm. depends on the individual and person. Um, and for the most part, we really felt like there wasn't a good resource for sending you know, everyday sort of average internet users to. They could really provide them with some simple, Tailored, customized advice for them. Um, so, so the the starting point here was that we wanted to provide something to to folks that was not designed for high risk users. There's a lot of really great digital security advice out there mm-hmm. for people who are, who are higher risk, who are folks focused on um, more advanced privacy. Um, but we we wanted to create something for folks who are just sort of starting off their internet security journey. Um, And so uh, Jigsaw and Citizen Lab got together and created Mm -hmm. this prototype of the tool. It was handed off to the Citizen Lab uh, in 2015. And since then, the Citizen Lab got together a peer review community of experts in digital security who really formed sort of the backbone of creating all of the recommendations that are used in the tool. Um, We also, yeah. We also brought together, you know, this outside, the outside community of folks Mm -hmm. as well. You know, we wanted to really look at all of the great work done by other organizations in this field and really rely upon that as well. So um, we asked folks from other organizations that have been working on building digital security tools to help provide feedback on Security Planner. And and we wanted to really, you know, complement existing resources that were out there. So we also point to a lot of outside
1: guides. No, no. I said I think that's great, and 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 yeah, I mentioned right. You know, it's, it's 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 it is hard, right? As somebody who's who's an expert myself, you know. Okay, you ask a what seems like a simple question: How do I protect myself? Uh, and the answer can just branch out depending on you know all the various devices and and tools you have. Uh, you know, and it it is a more complicated problem than it seems. So, like I said, I, you know, when I saw this, I was like, you know, we definitely should have somebody on to talk about it, uh, a a little bit. Uh, so, uh, you know, what kind of, uh, you know, high level recommendations, right? Is this, does this tool teach you to do, you know, for instance, like mobile security, right? Uh, what kind of advice do you guys, uh, recommend for people there?
3: Yeah. So, the advice is tailored and customized to the individual. So um, just sort of to take a step back, the way that the tool is formatted is it's a three-step survey. The first step asks individuals to tell us about the types of technologies they're using. So are you using an iPhone or an Android phone? Are you using a Mac computer or a Windows computer? Um, you know, what types of internet activities are you engaging in? Do you do you shop online? Do you do online banking? Do you use social media? Do you regularly use email? Um, and then we ask folks, to tell us a little bit about the types of concerns that they have. So are you, are you concerned about improving your privacy, whether in web browsing or in your private communications? Are you concerned about um, downloading viruses and malware, or are you concerned about the integrity of your online account? So based on the pro- that profile that we, that we get from the user, we give them recommendations. So, um, you know, we want to make sure that um, someone who's an iPhone user doesn't get, uh, a recommendation to encrypt their Android device. Um, so that's, you know, to us, one of the really important parts of this tool is making sure that those recommendations are tailored to the specific use case. Um, that being said, the recommendations that we provide are, are pretty, you know, they're, they're some of the, the lower hanging fruit recommendations for folks. So these are some of the first steps that almost anyone can take to be a little bit safer online. Things like using two factor authentication, um, you know, encrypting your devices doing security checkups, um, you know, looking to have backups uh, for your information and your data. So the so recommendations that are really oriented towards folks who are sort of taking those first steps on their journey.
1: No, like I said, I'm kind of clicking around there uh, and just seeing some of the advice and some things right at a high level. We talked uh, talked about before two-factor authentication, you know, but certainly there's there's a lot more to it than that. And uh, you even have a section on there for gaming systems.
3: Uh, Yeah. Well, so, um, you know, one of the things that we want to do in the future is really expand out the type of advice that we're able to provide users. Um, But ultimately, it was a little bit of a trade off as well, you know, sort of coming up with a final list of recommendations at this point in time, because one of the things that we were really conscious of wanting to do was not give anyone a list of 103 things that they can do to better secure themselves online. Um, mm-hmm. so, uh, I think, you know, maybe while you're clicking through the tool, one of the things that you'll notice is that it, it's pretty user friendly. Um, the language is pretty open and accessible and we really wanted to focus on, um, eliminating some of the barriers that users, uh, face and, and taking some and, and, improving their digital security. And one of the barriers that we found that a lot of individuals, um, say that they face when they try to take some of those depth is that they feel like there's just way too much advice out there. It's super conflicting. Um, the, the terminology that's used is really technical. It's full of jargon. Um, and so we had to ultimately make some, some trade-offs in the types of recommendations that, that we included. But it is, it is you know, a fairly in-depth tool as it currently stands. I think that there's about 40 recommendations that are currently included in Security Planner. Um, But they are the recommendations that our peer review community ultimately decided would be not only the most impactful uh, to average users, but also the most accessible.
1: Yeah. And that's the kind of thing that strikes me is that, yeah, this is put in a very uh, easy to do format where people could say, hey, all right, I can do these five things. Or, uh, you know, the first thing was produced. If you do one thing, this is what you should do uh and and giving you some resources and places to go from there to figure out the nuances of it because you know two factor auth for Gmail is different than auth 365 right you know all of these services have that now but sure. how you turn it on is uh obviously different and more complicated
3: yeah absolutely mm-hmm.
1: so uh and and also like I said I knows right there's connect with specialists so people have some mechanisms to even go even further than that and uh, you know, certainly for people of higher risk or facing online harassment and things of that sort, pointing resources to people who are actually kind of currently in the middle uh, of, of a situation where they might need a little extra help.
3: Yeah, you know, that was a really important component of building Security Planner to us was that, you know, we recognize that we can't self-select who comes to the site. And so if there are individuals with higher risk who come to Security Planner or people who need more comprehensive threat modeling, you um, and just, you know, more comprehensive assistance. We wanted to make sure that we were pointing those individuals to outside external resources that could better help them. Um, and so you'll see that we, you know, there's a variety of guides on there for individuals who are higher risk for folks who are facing um, online harassment and trying to cope and manage with that. Um, individuals who are interested in, in learning how to be anonymous online, because mm-hmm. that in and of itself is of its own. Field with its own guys, um, and so yeah, we really wanted to try and be really explicit to users that these are great stuff that you can take, but for a lot of people, these are not going to be sufficient, um, and especially if you are an individual who's facing higher risk, or you know, you're really looking to be anonymous online, there are there are other types of things that you need to be doing.
1: No, not, and that and that's certainly true, but you know, at least this. Gets you down the road somewhat, right? You know, everybody needs to start somewhere, and this is a good, this definitely a good starting point uh, for anybody. So, you know, if you're interested more about how to protect yourself online of all your various uh, devices and technologies used, take a look at uh, securityplanner.org and uh, go ahead, go through the questionnaire and see some of the advice uh, that it will generate for you. So, thank you again, uh, Christine, for joining us today.
3: Thanks so much, John. Appreciate your time.
1: Again, that was Christine Scholhorn from Security Planner. She's a project manager with Citizen Lab. Uh, And again, check out that website, securityplanner.org. And for more information about all the great work that uh, Citizen Lab does, you can go see their website at citizenlab.ca. That brings us to the end, of the end of our show. If you want to connect with us online, you can do so at radio.com on Facebook and Twitter at CyberSecRadio or email John Radio at gmail.com J-O-H-N-B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K Radio at gmail.com Always great to hear your feedback uh, and certainly check out the podcast version of the show, whatever you use for podcasting software, just take a look for CyberSecurity Today Radio. Uh, brings us to the end of our show. Hope you have a great rest of your weekend and catch you back here next Saturday for Cybersecurity Today Radio with John Bamanek.